Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and today we've got a very special episode for you. This podcast has officially been on the air for a very brief three months at this point. That's a quarter of a year, a full summer, 90 days, however you want to think about it. And to me, that feels like a very short time. But then I pull up the Modern Bar Cart inbox and I see all the listener-generated questions that have piled up during those three months. So... This episode is all about you folks, the listeners who make this podcast exciting by sending along your questions and your feedback. We're going to take a virtual field trip through the Modern Bar Cart mailbag today, and we'll see if I can't shed some light on some of the most pressing cocktail dilemmas our fans are facing in their lives. Before we jump in, a couple quick requests, though. Number one, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please take a moment right now and think of a couple people in your life who would also perhaps enjoy it. And then next time you run into those folks, whether that's at work, at the store, at the gym, on Facebook, please share it with them so that next time I go through the mailbag, I can answer their questions as well. Number two, we also receive a lot of really sweet messages from people who are grateful for the knowledge they get by listening to this podcast. And Don't get me wrong, I always love hearing that encouragement. It helps me to stay excited about this show week after week, and it definitely pushes me to keep improving things like the audio quality and the content. But if you really want to help us out, please consider heading over to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a nice five-star review if you think we deserve it. And the reason I say this is because the more positive reviews we have, the more people will happen across our humble show in their online cocktail travels. That's what you can do to help me, and now I'm going to help you by giving you the chance to make yourself a drink. That's right, today's featured cocktail is the Moscow Mule, and yes, we've got a mailbag question about Moscow Mules, but even if we didn't, it's still a delicious cocktail that everybody should know how to make. If you couldn't tell by the name, this is a vodka-based cocktail, probably one of the better-known vodka drinks behind the vodka martini and the white Russian. It's spicy, stimulating, and it transcends seasons, which makes it kind of unique. Unlike a margarita or a mojito, which are very summery cocktails that have similar flavor profiles, you're not going to raise any eyebrows if you serve up a Moscow Mule during the winter. So, how do you make one? It's pretty easy. So you first take one and a half to two ounces of vodka and put that in a rocks glass or a large mug with some ice. And to that, you add four ounces of ginger beer and the juice of about a quarter to a half a lime. Give that a quick stir right in the drinking vessel and you garnish it pretty much any way you like. There's no super strict garnish rules for the Moscow Mule. Two quick things that are noteworthy about this recipe that I want to point out. First, instead of shaking or stirring in a mixing glass, which 
is the procedure for most of the cocktails that we've gone through so far in this podcast, you can actually build this cocktail right in the glass, which is a big time saver. And that's what it's called when you just take the end vessel that you're going to serve the cocktail in and, and create it right there. It's called building the cocktail. And the other thing I want to point out is that notice that vodka and lime juice in this recipe, the amounts are kind of estimates. You can go an ounce and a half to two ounces of vodka. You can juice a quarter to a half a lime. And the reason for this is that some people like their drinks stronger or weaker when it comes to booziness or acidity. And the Moscow Mule recipe makes it really easy to tailor the cocktail to your individual taste. One last pro tip. Personally, if I'm making a Moscow Mule in the winter, I usually like to add a nice base note to this really light, generally summery drink. So I use the same recipe, but then I'll float several healthy dashes of embitterment aromatic bitters right on top before I serve it up. And the nice thing about these particular aromatic bitters is that they emphasize a lot of those comforting spice notes that are popular during the holidays, cinnamon, star anise, cloves, and these flavors really add depth to a regular Moscow Mule. So if that sounds tasty to you, head over to modernbarcart.com and grab a bottle today. Now that we know how to make a Moscow Mule, I think it's time to get to our first listener-generated question from the Modern Barcart mailbag. And this is courtesy of Jenny from Texas, who says, Hi, Eric. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it with my boyfriend every weekend. I was hoping you could clear up a question about Moscow mules. I've got a girlfriend who has a set of copper mugs, and she says the only way to drink a Moscow mule is in a copper mug. But I saw an article last week that said they're toxic. Is that true? And if so, how do I break it to my girlfriend so I don't crush her enthusiasm? Jenny, great question, and it's got kind of a quirky, complicated answer. And in the interest of legal safety, I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm not a doctor. None of the content in this podcast or the show notes is intended as medical advice, but fear not, we will still get to the bottom of your question. For starters, I think we need to figure out what the connection is between Moscow mules and those really distinctive copper mugs they're usually served in. As someone with a marketing background, this happens to be one of my personal favorite stories of a marketing ploy that got so popular that it actually started a cultural trend. And I'm taking this directly from a 2007 article from copper.com, interesting website, by an author named Michael Servin. And I'm just going to read a bit of this directly because I think he does a good job narrating the story. So we're starting off with Michael's words now. If the old stories about the genesis of the drink, the Moscow Mule, are correct, they are mostly unanimous with a few variations, then it goes like this. In the, 19, in the early 1940s, John Martin was the president of G.F. Hoiblin and Brothers, an East Coast food and spirits importer best known for introducing A1 steak sauce to America. Sometime in the 1930s, Martin, in an effort to market the next cocktail craze, purchased a small vodka distillery called Smirnoff for $14,000. Yes, that Smirnoff. Back then, very few people drank vodka because most had never heard of it, let alone tasted it. One day, while Martin was visiting his friend Jack Morgan, who owned the Cock and Bowl pub on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, he bemoaned the fact that he couldn't sell his vodka. Morgan complained he couldn't sell his ginger beer, a side passion of his that saw cases of it sitting in his restaurant's basement. 
and a third person, never identified in any of the stories, lamented that she had copper mugs that she either didn't want or need. Enter the brainstorm. Could all three benefit from combining their losses? The vodka and ginger beer were mixed with a dash of lime juice and served in copper mugs, imprinted with a kicking mule. In one of the most successful marketing campaigns in cocktail history, Martin combined these three seemingly hopeless endeavors into one of the most popular drinks of the 1950s and early 1960s. Advertised as the Smirnoff Mule, magazine ads and posters across the nation showed celebrities enjoying this tasty drink. The result was that the Moscow Mule became a huge hit within a few years, helped by the Hollywood set and their affinity for the latest cocktail trends. Copper mugs were soon ordered across the country to support the lively libation. And that is the end of the quote that I'm reading. So I'll sidebar here and say that there are, in fact, other spins on this story. Some of them involve a Russian copper company, and some claim that John Martin's girlfriend is, in fact, the source of the original copper mugs. But the spirit of the story still stands. Three people with similar issues pooled their resources and created a cultural phenomenon. So... Now we know how the copper mug and the Moscow mule got paired up in the first place, but what about this new claim of toxicity that seemed to come kind of out of nowhere pretty recently? Well, earlier this month, August 2017, the Iowa Alcoholic Beverages Division issued an advisory bulletin. Sounds pretty serious. Warning that beverages with a pH of below 6 may not be served in vessels containing copper or a copper alloy because this could cause the copper to leach into the beverage, which is not safe. Now, if you think back to high school chemistry, you'll recall that pH is a measure of how basic or acidic a given solution happens to be. The higher the pH, the more basic it is, and the lower the pH, the more acidic it is. When you break down the ingredients of the Moscow Mule, you've realized that lime juice is pretty acidic. It's actually got a pH of just two, which makes it like really, really down there on the scale. And this will tend to dip the pH of the overall cocktail well below the threshold of six cited by the Iowa Alcoholic Beverages Division in that report. Personally, I was a copper mug skeptic well before this report came out because when I was a kid, I remember getting a science kit for my birthday one year And one of the experiments was to wrap a penny in copper wire and you you stick that penny into a lemon and then you connect the wire to a little light bulb and lo and behold, it flickered on. So from a very young age, I knew, even if I didn't understand exactly how it worked, I knew there was some sort of chemical reaction going on between copper and acid. And that chemical reaction probably wasn't going to affect taste in a positive way. And if you pair that with a fairly well-established fact that you shouldn't cook tomatoes, which are another highly acidic food, in reactive metal pans, then you've got kind of a pattern of facts that all hint away from the use of copper in food preparation or service. Fortunately for Jenny's friend, all is not lost because there are plenty of copper mugs on the market today that are lined with non-reactive substances like nickel or stainless steel, and these are perfectly fine to use without fear of leaching any copper into your beverages. In fact, I do think there's one really positive case for serving a Moscow Mule in a metal container, maybe not a copper metal container, at least on the inside, Um, but ultimately that reason has to do with the ginger. See, 
ginger creates a really powerful spicy sensation on the tongue, especially if you're using a spicy carbonated ginger beer as well. And a natural way to moderate the effect of that spice is to make sure the drink is super cold when you enjoy it. And the insulating effects of the copper mug do a really good job of working in tandem with the ice to keep your drink colder longer. So Jenny, that's all a really long way of saying that those copper mugs are pretty much a scam perpetrated by some dude in the 1930s, but your friend is really attached to her mugs, it seems like, so just make sure that they're coated with the right material on the inside and you are good to go and continue enjoying your Moscow mules. Next question comes to us from Steve in Washington State, who writes, Greetings, Modern Bar Cart team. Love the podcast so far and hoping you can help with ideas for an upcoming party. My wife and I are having a bunch of friends over for our 20th wedding anniversary and we're looking to serve cocktails for about 30 people. I know you've mentioned punch and other batched cocktails on the podcast before and was hoping you'd be able to share a few of your favorite recipes. First off, congrats to Steve and Steve's wife on their 20th anniversary, and I'd be absolutely thrilled to offer a couple of my favorite large format cocktail recipes. And I'll start off by saying the definitive text on these sorts of drinks, in my opinion, is the book Punch by David Wondrich, author of Imbibe, who does a really bang up job researching these 300 year old recipes and translating them into modern units of measure, which believe me, is no small task. There's a few different theories on the origins of the word punch, but many scholars agree that it has something to do with the Sanskrit or Hindustani word panch, P-A-A-N-S-T-C-H, meaning five. This lines up with the fact that Dutch and British sailors who popularized the beverage had ports in India and were kind of exposed to the culture and cuisine of that civilization before most Europeans. And accordingly, with the word punch, there are five ingredients in most traditional punches. One, water or tea. Two, a spirit of some sort. Three, sugar of some sort. Four, citrus, again, of some sort. And five, spice, often, in this case, grated nutmeg. My personal go-to recipe for punch involves a ratio that can be scaled depending either on your scarcest ingredient, i.e. the thing you have least of at home, or alternatively, the number of guests you intend to serve. And this recipe, you can kind of play around with. You can change in different spirits, different citruses. What's really important is the ratio which is four to two to one to one, tea or water to spirits to demerara sugar syrup to citrus. And we'll get into this. I'll I'll make sure that you have a really good understanding of this recipe before we move on. And for the fifth element, the element of spice, what I do is I almost always substitute embitterment aromatic bitters because of the emphasis on deep, dark Eastern spices that add really nice depth to the recipe. So I don't have to worry about grating nutmeg on every little drink that I pour. So what does that look like? Let's take an example. A regular 750 ml bottle of spirits is roughly 25 ounces, which is a really good measure to scale up or down. So for Steve, let's assume you pick up two bottles of dark rum, for example. That's 50 ounces of spirits, which means for the four to two to one to one ratio, 
you need 100 ounces of tea. I usually use green tea because it's way less caffeinated. And then 25 ounces each of, let's say, lime juice and dark, simple syrup. So if I were to make this recipe, here's how I'd do it. I'd get a large pot, add about six or eight bags of green tea, and then I'd boil that and let it cool down. For the sugar syrup, I'd simmer a one-to-one ratio of water and then dark demerara sugar, like Florida crystals, for example, and then cool that down as well. And finally, for the citrus, I'd purchase about 25 limes. Again, can get a little bit expensive, but you're going to get a lot of servings out of this, so it's worth it. And the reason why I'm purchasing 25 limes is you get roughly an ounce of juice from each lime. And then I'll juice and then strain those so that the little strings and the the flesh remnants are kind of separated from the end lime juice. And for pro tips, uh, you can check out the Citrus Crash Course episode where I offered a lot of good tips on how to effectively and cleanly juice your lemons and limes. So at the end of this process, you should have 100 ounces of tea, about 50 ounces of spirits or two regular size bottles, and then 25 ounces each of lime juice and dark simple syrup. And literally all you have to do at this point is find a vessel that can hold about two gallons and then combine everything and let it chill down. So for spice, again, remember you can either add about a half bottle of embitterment aromatic bitters, or you can figure out a service method that'll allow your guests to maybe grate nutmeg over the top of their punch. Either of those is a really good option. This recipe makes about 54 ounce servings, which will definitely more than cover the amount of guests Steve says he will have present. But if you want to scale the recipe further, either up or down, just rely on the trusty four to two to one to one ratio. All you need are a few good measuring cups and a large enough pot, pitcher, or bowl for your punch. Now, let's say you don't want punch. Let's say you'd like to create a different large format cocktail, maybe something more along the lines of a classic. My best advice here is, again, let the ratios guide you. Don't worry so much about the precise measures at first. Try to get something with simple ratios. Pick drinks that either have simple two-to-one ratios, like a Manhattan, for example, or something that follows a quote-unquote perfect ratio, which means that you're using equal portions of each ingredient. For entertaining purposes here, if I'm hosting, let's say, anywhere from four to eight people, I like to just make a nice big pitcher of Manhattans, Negronis, or Boulevardiers, which is the whiskey equivalent of the Negroni. If you'd like to learn more about the Manhattan and the recipe for that, check out episode nine with Josh Wolf. And if you want to learn more about the Negroni and the Boulevardier recipes, just jump backwards one episode to episode 13 with Jonathan Fasano, where we discuss various Amaro-focused cocktails. But all of those three cocktails are really easy to scale and to make as a batch. So good options there. And with that... We will jump to our next question, which comes to us from Chantal, who lives in Richmond. And Chantal asks, I have a gluten intolerance and I'm looking for spirits that will allow me to enjoy my cocktails without worrying about having a reaction. Are there specific spirits that are gluten free? Great question, Chantal, and definitely a really common one to which you'll find a lot of different answers. And I suspect that Chantal is coming to us after having done a basic Google search and found a bunch of conflicting evidence online. Again, 
going to take a second, mention that I'm not a doctor. None of this is medical advice, but I do kind of have a personal take on the question, and I'm happy to walk you through my logic. When it comes to gluten intolerance, the first thing we need to establish is what gluten is and why some people's bodies can't handle it all that well. I mean, sure, I mean, most people know that gluten has something to do with bread or grains of some sort, but we should probably get more specific. Gluten is actually a protein structure found in certain grains that creates an elastic quality that helps foods like bread and pasta hold their form. And I know it might sound kind of complicated, but the key term here is protein. Gluten is a protein, and that's going to be very important. The very general reason why people with gluten intolerance have trouble with this substance is that their immune system kind of attacks one of the key constituents of gluten, as well as the enzyme responsible for breaking down gluten and other nutrients as well. And this kind of has a cascading effect on gut health, which can lead to a host of health issues. The bottom line here is gluten intolerance is a serious thing. And even though what I'm about to say might tick some people off, I'm definitely not suggesting that this condition should be taken lightly. It's very serious and you know you should always consult with your doctor if you suspect that you might have any medical issues pertaining to something that you're consuming. That's, that's very important. That being said, the distillation process uses the sugars in certain grains like wheat, barley, corn, and it puts those sugars through various chemical and physical processes that result in alcohol. The main difference between brewing and distilling is that brewers use fermentation to produce their beer, but spirit makers employ both fermentation and distillation to create their spirits. So distillers are going through an extra step that brewers don't go through. It's during the process of distillation that gluten is purged from most, if not all, spirits. And to give a basic overview of how this works, basically a distiller takes something called a mash, which contains fermented water and grain, and then puts that lightly alcoholic mixture through a machine called a still, which heats the mash to the point of evaporation. So what happens here, as the mixture is heated, the alcohol evaporates and it travels up the still, where it's caught and cooled in a unit called a condenser, and then it's collected for aging and or bottling. Here's the catch. Proteins, including gluten, can evaporate, which means that they're left behind in the spent mash that's left over at the end of the distillation process. So as long as the distiller is doing his or her job correctly, then there should be no gluten in your spirits, no matter what the base grain. And again, why? Because proteins can't evaporate. Here's where I kind of backtrack to cover my ass a bit. Just because that's how distillation works doesn't mean that there aren't potential sources of gluten contamination after the spirit comes out of the still. After all, distilleries are facilities that process lots of grains, so it's very possible that an unclean facility could result in trace amounts of gluten in a given spirit if it's handled carelessly after distillation. And the same could be said of aged spirits because, you know, who knows where the barrels are stored and how they're treated. We don't know if there's some way for gluten to get in there. So if you're a person who knows for a fact that you are sensitive to absolutely minuscule amounts of gluten, then you've still got a lot of great options for gluten-free liquor. And the key here is to stick with spirits like potato vodka, tequila, mezcal or rum all of which are made with ingredients that do not contain gluten so at the end of the day 
even if you are extremely sensitive to gluten and you want to steer clear of any possibility of ingesting it, you've still got some good options. I'm going to leave you with one last thought on the subject, and it might not be a popular one. In my experience, gluten has become a little bit larger than life in the health world, and for some people, a mild gluten intolerance is kind of an opportunity to get just a little bit more personal attention and exercise just a little bit of control that they wouldn't otherwise have over their restaurant or their dinner host or their distiller. It's unfortunate, but it's true. So when I explain to people with gluten intolerance about how the distilling process works and we're standing in a sparklingly clean distillery run by people who take great care to ensure the purity of their product, I still very often get this response that basically says, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to go ahead and continue to believe what I believe, no matter how much sense scientifically what you're saying makes. So ultimately, in the end, I think some people are influenced more by the placebo effect and the little mental high they get from controlling the conversation than they are by the imagined presence of a few gluten particles. Again, just my opinion, and that's where I'll let it rest. Moving on to lighter subject matter, Brian from right here in Washington, D.C. says, When it comes to spirits, I'm kind of a thrill seeker. I'm always looking for something really old school, really new school, or really weird. Since it seems like you do a lot of work with spirits, I was hoping you'd have some recommendations. Well, Brian, flavor thrill seeking, something I can definitely relate to personally when I'm making cocktails or experimenting, I'm more of a quiet thrill seeker. I like to make subtle tweaks in my cocktails and see how those changes ripple outward and affect the overall quality of the drink. I absolutely think there's some good value in pushing your personal flavor limits and going out of your way to try new spirits, liqueurs, whatever. I guess ultimately it's one small way to try and relate to people from different time periods and different cultures. And in that sense, I think your quote-unquote thrill-seeking is also kind of a strain of global citizenship as long as you take the time to really learn about what you're drinking. So in the interest of keeping Brian's magical mystery bar crawl moving ever toward a new adventure, I've put together a list of some liquids he might want to look into if he hasn't already checked them off his list. My first tip here would be to check out some of the spirits from the Baltic and Scandinavian areas of Europe. So a good example here is something called Akvavit, A-K-V-A-V-I-T, which is a type of eau de vie from Scandinavia that has a lot of different regional variations. And in fact, lucky for Brian, Green Hat Gin right here in DC does a seasonal flavor inspired by that ancient style of Scandinavian spirit. So if you want to check that out, pick up a bottle of their Genevieve. Moving slightly farther south, there's a fairly popular Baltic and Eastern European brandy called Slivovitz, S-L-I-V-O-V-I-T-Z, and it's made from the damson plum. And I only had this once, but what I really remember about the experience was the subtle fruitiness and I'm just dying to get my hands on some more so that I can make some funky cocktails with it. Fruit brainies are really fun to experiment especially if they're on the drier side because you really get the character of the fruit that's not clouded by a lot of sugar or something. So try and get your hands on some Slivovitz if you can. And definitely, if you do, send us an email at podcast at modernbarcart.com. Let us know how it tastes. 
Hopping over to Asia, you could also try Arak, A-R-A-K, which is a palm liquor that was popularized in various punches in the 1600s and 1700s by European sailors. Again, they're doing their trade in these places like India and Asia, and so this is the kind of spirit that they had access to, and so inevitably it went into those punches. And it's got a kind of funky, oily character many times, and it's very different from most of the really smooth and polished spirits that are coming out of American stills these days. So kind of a a little challenge for your taste buds there. I've also had the chance to try a Laotian-style rice whiskey called Lao Lao, and I was surprised, honestly, by how much fruitiness was generated by a base mash comprised of rice. Because you think of rice, you think of not all that much flavor, but the Lao Lao I tried was very, very fruity, very aromatic and perfumed, and it was a very unique whiskey experience. So uh, luckily for Brian, again, if he grabs a ride about an hour and a half east of DC, he'll find White Tiger Distillery on Kent Island, where this style of whiskey is made right here in the US. Great distillery, great people, um, very fun time to tour that and taste. Hitting the savory side of the spectrum of flavor, I'd recommend pretty much anything made with caraway seeds. And these are the things on rye bread. I know there's definitely a few Eastern European spirits that infuse their products with caraway, which gives it kind of, again, that rye bread quality. But if you're looking for an American brand that's doing some cool stuff with this ingredient, once again, look no further than Maryland. Um, And this is where 10th Ward Distilling in Frederick makes a caraway-based spirit. And because they actually use the caraway in their mash rather than simply infusing it at the end of the process, their product has a really fascinating menthol forward profile. And I'm just dying to get my hands on a bottle so that I can do something minty with it, you know, like a mint julep or maybe a modified mojito. So next time I am up in the Frederick area, I'm definitely going to pick up a bottle of that and we'll hopefully post some notes on social media or something. So check out at Quixologist, that's Q-U-I-X-ologist, if you want to check out some of my personal cocktail exploits. So Brian, hope I've given you enough here to keep your taste bud wanderlust satisfied, at least for the time being. And I'd like to wrap up this quick mailbag session with a little teaser question brought to us by Elizabeth in Arizona, who says, hi, Eric. Great episode with Jonathan from Don Ciccio. I'm such a huge Amaro fan. It was fun to hear you talk about it. But I also heard you mention you've been doing a lot of flavor development recently, and I can't help but ask if there's any new products for us on the horizon. I love your lavender bitters, but now you've got me curious. Any chance you'll share what you're working on? And then she put the word please with like seven E's and four A's followed by the praying hands emoji and the martini glass emoji. Well, Elizabeth, clearly we millennials need to stick together and help each other out. So I will give you the tiniest sneak peek into what we've been working on here at Modern Bar Cart. We're extremely close to launching a totally new sister product line to Embitterment, and it doesn't have anything to do with bitters. That much I can tell you. And I can also tell you that this product line, like Embitterment, will also be certified USDA organic. And if you want to be the first to know when these new flavors are available to the world, you should follow Modern Bar Cart on Facebook and Instagram, where we will be doing 
lots of announcing because we are very excited. And as long as nothing catastrophic happens in the world of bottles and labels and production schedules, we should be releasing these products officially during the first week of September here in 2017. So again, super exciting. And I'm really stoked to share a whole bunch of recipes with you involving our new products very soon. And that's it for today's mailbag session. I hope that you all keep sending along your questions and requests to podcast at modernbarkart.com. And thank you to the folks in today's episode for giving me permission to use them on the podcast. Take care, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over, but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart, or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Bye.